I'll pray. Lord God, may your words be sweeter to our taste than honey to the mouth. May we gain understanding from your precepts. May your word be a lamp to our feet and a light for our paths. In Jesus' name, Amen. A couple of months ago, we were preaching through early Romans and at night through Galatians. The focus, salvation by grace alone, not by works, through faith alone, in Christ's death on the cross alone. One of my friends wrote something like this on a comment card. Uh, I think we're in danger of too much Paul and not enough James. That is, all faith, no works. Paul says faith alone. Doesn't James say faith and works? Don't your good works matter somehow? He was expressing a concern for right living, righteousness in practice. Justification gives us a righteous status, forgiveness through Jesus' blood. God, the righteous judge, declares we are in the right with him. But what of right living? Well, actually, you don't need to go to James to find this concern. It was right there in Galatians, which my friend would have heard at night church if he'd turned up a week, a few weeks later. Uh, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's Galatians 5.6. Or you could try 5.13. Serve one another humbly in love. But the same concern for righteousness, for holy living, begins today in Romans from chapter 6. I'll hammer this today, but get it in your head. Chapters 1 to 5 establish grace alone by faith alone. In particular, chapters 3 and 4 taught justification. Again, that we are justified, forgiven, counted right with God only by faith in Christ's death. Not our works, not even a little bit. And most recently, chapter 5 taught reconciliation. The love of Jesus was shown to his enemies, which means we have peace with God, reconciliation. And so it's not just a courtroom decision going your way, it's also about a restored relationship. And it's all God's grace. Gary said, do you remember Romans 5.20, the end of the verse? But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. I explained that all the more was hyper. With God's grace, it hyper-increased. Grace pours over a dam wall like a river in flood or like an Andy in search of a coffee in the morning. Hyper, hyper down at Nara. Well, it leads to the obvious Q&A. Obvious question, Paul's answer. The question comes, Romans 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? You know, if sin leads to hyper-increasing grace, well, why not sin all the more to get more grace? Sort of like you could go disobeying your dad again and again to get the joy of being forgiven again and again. Uh, Romans 5, verse 20 said, the law can't slow down sin. Can grace do it? 
the English poet W.H. Auden, if you don't remember it, maybe Four Weddings and a Funeral, Stop All the Clocks, that poem. Well, he said, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them, so the world's admirably arranged. You know, it's God's job to forgive sin, so well, let's get on with it. More theologically, if my salvation all depends on what Christ has done, well, then what does it matter how I live? Why not, as verse 1 says, go on in sin? Why bother trying to break the habit? Well, Paul's answer comes in verse 2. By no means. We have an international congregation here, so let me give you the Spanish. No way, Jose. Sorry, it's probably not quite right. Verse 2, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live at it any longer? The Christian has experienced a decisive break. He or she has died to sin, pointing to a particular event. The heart rate monitor no longer beeps steadily but goes flat line. Well, death means a break in life up until that moment. And if you've become a Christian, there's been a decisive break between you and sin. Now, clearly this cannot mean becoming a Christian removes all influence of sin. It's not that you feel all dead to sin. Common sense says we still experience many of the sinful impulses, the bad habits, the temptations of the past. But it's just unthinkable for a Christian to relax in it By no means, no way, Jose. To die to sin means to die to sin's rule over you. Its control is ended. With justification from chapters 3 to 5, sin is pardoned. Now with chapters 6 to 8, sin is subdued. Its power broken and righteousness begins to reign. Now, Paul says it all hangs on being baptised into Christ. That's the second point. Look at verses 3 and 4. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Actually, this is one of the fairly few places Paul mentions baptism. I've done a few baptisms, a couple in a swimming pool or down at the beach, but mostly at church, pouring some water over babies born to Christian parents or with those converted to Christ from non-Christian backgrounds as adults. It's a symbol, a signpost pointing to all the blessings of beginning with God. It's a happy occasion. Now, of course, some Christians are so suspicious of you know, repetitive, meaningless ritual, too much mysterious symbolism that we can downplay the sign Christ himself commanded, Matthew 28:19, end of the gospel, therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I just say, if there's anyone here today who's become a Christian and not yet been baptised, well, it'd be great to ask one of the ministers about it. If you've begun with Christ, then get the symbol of beginning with Christ. 
The same thing with your baby whom you want to raise to know the love of Jesus from the start. But the focus here is not on the ritual. Paul says nothing about the mechanics. Elsewhere he does not fuss about him being the one to baptise people. And he moves on from this topic here very quickly. But here he just assumes that baptism stands for something very powerful. And actually verse 3 says it's baptism into Jesus' death. And verse 4 says we were buried with Jesus through baptism into death. We think of the baby's birth, the white dresses, all the relatives coming and taking photos or, you know, if it's older, you know, the fun of the pastor getting into the swimming pool trying to dunk someone and well, actually, uh, Paul says your baptism was your funeral. Not, not literally, we, we don't want any drownings here with our baptisms, thank you. Uh, but actually, that's the point of the imagery. Sometimes the Bible uses the water in baptism to symbolise cleansing, washing away your sins. But here it symbolises death, you see it. You are immersed in the water. In fact, other writings from this time, the baptism word is used to describe boats sinking in the sea, people drowning, immersed in water, flooded. Indeed, in the Gospels, Jesus referred to his own coming death as a baptism. And this is saying we participate in that death and burial. The New Testament refers to Jesus' burial quite often. The the details are given, um, the tomb, the seal, uh, in the Gospels, uh, the Apostles' Creed, it echoes that list in 1 Corinthians when it says he was crucified, died and was buried. Burial is a reminder. This is a real end point, a decisive event, a very real. He didn't just get sick, Jesus, uh, get all faint and weak he died and was buried the body would have begun to start smelling except for the spices and decomposing and us well we die with him not literally but spiritually because somehow we were there with him we died with Christ our old sinful self was buried there When he bore the death penalty for our sins on the cross, we are buried therefore not in our own spiritual grave that we deserve so much as in Jesus' grave. And of course that's a reminder that it's not the water that cleanses you. Like every page almost of the New Testament, Romans 6 makes the cross central. That's what offers a person forgiveness That's what does away with your sin. But burial with Christ in baptism leads not just down into the water, but up out of it to life and resurrection. Verse 4 again. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life. This new life begins now. 
I think in verse 4, the new age where literally, uh, where, where we will see sin no longer rules over your life. The end of verse 4 literally says, uh, translating literally, walking in newness of life. It's a picture of, well, walking means moving forward, steady progress in the new way of life as followers of Jesus. But then it leads on to the final future resurrection of the dead. That's verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. The thoughts repeat of verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And this living with him in verse 8, I think most likely refers to the final resurrection of the dead. It's future tense. We will live with him in heaven in the new creation where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. As Revelation 21 says, the old order of things has passed away and Kleenex tissues are out of business for good. The reason we can be sure it's talking not just spiritually now but the final resurrection is because it's modelled on Jesus' resurrection. Like verse 9, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. When Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, it was four days and the dead man's sister said, there'll be a bad smell. But Jesus told Lazarus to come out and he did. But that raising from the dead... It was temporary, uh, more like a resuscitation than a final resurrection because Lazarus would have eventually got sick or died of old age and like all of us will unless Jesus returns first. But following his resurrection, Jesus never and never will die again. And after our final resurrection, when Jesus returns, neither will we. We'll be given our new transformed bodies, just like Jesus had, that death cannot hurt. And so we come really to the heart of this section, the key, union with Christ. Let's see verse 5 again. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we'll certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And some theologians think union with Christ is the centre of Paul's theology. That's just what we've been talking about. United with Christ. Our fate is caught up with Jesus' fate. Our destiny with what happened to him. It's underlined. We've been united with him in a death like his. Not identical totally, but so similar. So we died with him on the cross. Ours was not the literal physical death. Only Jesus suffered crucifixion for the sins of the world. But our old sinful self was decisively dealt with there. The sins were punished and done away with. And so we'll also be united with him in resurrection. Now the word translated here, united... It might help you to know, it's the word used in agriculture for grafting. That's where a branch of some plant 
is stuck onto, into, bound to and is grown together with the main trunk. We've got a lemon-lime splitter in our backyard. grows both lemons and limes on the one tree because both the lemon branch and the lime branch were grafted into solid rootstock. Yum! The lemon and the lime branch has become one tree with the main trunk. They get all the benefits of the moisture and the nutrients coming up through the roots and in a similar kind of way, when we put our trust in Christ, we are so connected to Christ that all the benefits of his death and resurrection come flowing to us. And the particular benefit on view here is freedom. Freedom from the rule of sin. This is the answer to the opening question. Verse 6 and 7. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin ruled my death might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who's died has been set free from sin. The old self, ruled by sin, is gone. So we're to no longer act like slaves to sin. And we don't have to do what sin whispers to us or demands from us. Yeah, that means we must still resist the powers of sin. But we can do it in the freedom provided by Christ's justifying death. John Wesley said, sin remains, but it does not reign. It's freedom from the old master who manipulated and mistreated you. Martin Lloyd-Jones gave the illustration of Abraham Lincoln's declaration that slavery had legally ended in America. That racist institution was done away with at law. But facts and feelings don't always line up. Imagine what a terrible thing that you'd been born into slavery, the only life you'd ever known, and then suddenly this day you're able to walk free. Out the gate. No one could stop you. But next day, as you walk down the road... You hear your old master call out, Come here, boy, shine my shoes. And your heart sinks. And all those memories of slavery flood back and you sort of even instinctively feel like you should drop to your knees and start polishing his boots. But you are free. Now that makes you his slave. And you should resist falling to your knees. In the Gospel of Jesus, our freedom is declared. Remember I said, chapters 3 to 5, we are free from sin's penalty. But now from chapter 6, we are free from sin's power. But there's a battle that remains and a big part of it's in the mind. And so we come to the conclusion of knowing and believing. Amazing thing about verses 110 is that there are no commands in this section not one not a single thou shalt it's all about what has happened and what God will do the application comes in the second half of the chapter Uh, that's next week that's Reg's job but there's something for us here now 
This week, it's all about knowing and believing. Verse 3, don't you know the facts about baptism with Christ? Verse 6, for we know about crucifixion with Christ. Verse 9, for we know about Christ's resurrection. And so, verse 8, we believe we will live with him. Christian faith is not wishful thinking. It's not some leap into the dark. It's based on knowing what we know about Jesus. That's why the evidence the Gospels supply about Jesus' death and resurrection is so important. We're staking our life on it. And this is telling us that if we're going to battle with the old temptations of the old Lord's sin, we need to get our heads right. We need to get our thinking straight. I think I've said this before but imagine you've been an asylum seeker you've, you've run away you've been stuck in a refugee camp for years full of hardship and fear and corruption and you're granted a visa to Australia it, it does still happen the government on behalf of the people give you that gift you are free and the first step to living, behaving like an Australian, is to believe it, the reality of your new status. In fact, sometimes people need to be convinced that it's really theirs, Australian. And when you know you're in Christ, you're free. And you can believe that what happens to Christ will happen to you that faith in Jesus unites us to Jesus the end of verse 10 the life he lives he lives to God and what is true of Jesus will be true of you and this is the first step to living and behaving like God wants us, it's knowing and living, knowing and believing we're in union with Christ. That's what will lead to living for God.